Exodus 32, starting in verse 30. Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35 is our text. Now, have you ever felt like you had to make up for something? You had to make up for something that you did or that you failed to do? For example, a very hypothetical husband makes his wife angry, hypothetically, of course, and then tries to make up for it by doing all kinds of chores without being asked. Not that I would ever do such a thing, completely hypothetical, but you understand how that could happen. A parent feels regret about the way that they raised their kids, and now the kids are adults and they're trying to make up for lost time. Or think about it the other way, a child feels regret for the way they've treated their parents, and then their parents seem to be coming to their last days and they're trying to make up for it. Or think about it, a criminal that comes to an understanding of his wicked ways and then spends the rest of his life trying to do good deeds to make up for all his bad ones. We understand this concept, but have you ever felt like that with God? Have you ever felt like that you you wanted to try to make it up to God because of your sins, because of your lack of holiness? Perhaps you you haven't, haven't read your Bible or spent time in prayer in quite some time, so you try to then read like 12, 15 chapters in one sitting and pray for 45 minutes straight in that one time to try to make it up to him. Or perhaps you've experienced this, you sin on a weekend or on a Saturday, and so on Sunday you make sure you come to church and try to be extra sincere during the worship service. This idea of making it up to God is uh, prevalent in many religions throughout the world, including the Catholic Church. It's the idea of penance. As long as you say certain prayers and do specific good deeds, you can be absolved of your sin. And so the question is, is it possible to make it up, so to speak, to God? Is it possible for us to do this? Can we undo or work off our sins against him? Can we make amends to God? How can we get out from under this guilt that we feel for sin? That's kind of the bottom of it, is it not? How can we get out from under this guilt This brings us to our text today, Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 30. This is God's word. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses turned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. I want to show you a few things from this text or specifically draw your attention to them. Number one is this word atonement that Moses uses in verse 30, the first verse of our text. 
Notice how Moses says, you people, you've sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. What does he mean? What is atonement? Not exactly a word we use in everyday life. Atonement essentially means making things right. After something has gone wrong, after someone has done wrong, making things right. Specifically when it applies to God, sin separates us from God. We learned that back in the very beginning chapters of the Bible, where Adam and Eve are cast out from the garden from God's presence, no longer able to experience his presence like they did before sin. We learned it from places like Isaiah 59, where Isaiah tells us your sin has made a separation between you and God. Sin separates us from God. Atonement, on the other hand, brings us back into right relationship with him. It has often been noted, I'm not the first one to note this, but if you look at that word atonement and kind of separate it out into parts, it reads at one meant. At one. Atonement is putting us back at one with God, making us one with God again, uniting us to him after we were separated. But the question is, how can this happen? How can it, how can it happen that we are brought back with God And it is only through forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, if you pay attention to Exodus 32, one thing that you'll notice, might be surprising, but one thing that you'll notice is, up to this point, we've read the whole chapter, but we haven't really dealt with forgiveness. We haven't really dealt with the people being forgiven of this sin that they've committed against God, of making this golden calf and worshiping it and turning their backs on God. They've made another God. They're they're forsaking the first two of the Ten Commandments, especially no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images and worship them, right? And so we haven't really up to this point dealt with forgiveness. Moses has interceded with God in prayer for the people, and God relented. God did not destroy them as he originally proclaimed. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and Moses kind of makes the people feel the consequences of their sin. But up to this point, we haven't dealt with forgiveness. And it is only through forgiveness that we can be made right with God again after sin. Only through forgiveness. Sin is what separates us from God. So we need God himself to forgive us and wipe our sins away if we want to be right with him. And so that seems simple enough, but there's a problem. There's a problem. The problem is forgiveness cannot simply be given. God cannot just sweep sin under the rug and say, yeah, you're you're, you're forgiven. Now, when it comes to our interactions with one another, we can just give forgiveness. We can do that. In fact, we must do that. We must forgive one another when we are sinned against. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder, but we can just give it out when we decide to give it out. We, we might have to come to that place in our hearts, but we can dole out forgiveness to one another. But God simply cannot just give forgiveness. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, you sinned against me, no big deal, you're forgiven. That cannot happen. That would make God unjust. Think about what it says in Proverbs twenty four twenty four: Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right will be cursed by peoples and abhorred by nations. And so whoever says to the wicked, yeah, yeah, you're in the right. It's fine. You're good. That's, that's horrible. 
That's not a good judge. That's not a good person. Wouldn't be a good God who looks at the wicked and says, you're fine. Think about this. Think about it like this. Think of a parent. A parent who is threatening punishment to a child if he does that thing that the parent doesn't want him to do again. And so the, the, the parent says something to the effect of, you do that again, you're going to get a spanking, right? Have you ever seen this happen? And then the child brazenly looks back at the parent and does exactly what they told them not to do and then is waiting to see what's going to happen. And then the parent does nothing, does not give the punishment that they threaten. What do we think of, of, of such parents? What, what might you have thought of me if you've seen me doing this? You think, bad parenting, right? You're not doing that child any favors. You're teaching that child that you don't follow through on your word. You're teaching that child that threats mean nothing. There are no consequences for disobeying mom or dad's word, right? We think that they were bad parents. They're not following through on their word. But the same would be infinitely more true of God if he just swept sin under the rug. If God looked out upon people brazenly breaking his commandments and said, yeah, I I know you sinned. I know you broke that commandment. I know you're rebelling against me, but no big deal. It's fine. You're forgiven. Don't worry about it. Just move on. Now, this would make God unjust if that's what happened. If that was the long and the short of it. If that was all there was, it would make God an unjust God. Now, you might think, well, if the offender is me, that's what I want God to do, right? You might be thinking, if, if the sinner we're talking about is me, of course I want God to just dole out forgiveness. But think about it in terms of if it's someone else that you might think is vastly more wicked than you are, right? We'll, we'll leave that discussion for another time, whether or not these people are more wicked than us. But what if the offender is someone like Adolf Hitler? What if the offender is someone like Joseph Stalin, Vladimir Putin? What if, what if the offender is someone who has done something to you that has ruined your life? What if it's someone who has taken the life of someone that you loved? If it's that person, are you okay with God just letting them off the hook? Are you okay with God sweeping sin under the rug and saying, no harm done, no harm done, no Absolutely not. A good God would never do that. The oppressed and the weak come to this God for justice. For justice. A good God brings wicked men to justice. A good God follows through on his word and his promises that there are consequences when you break his commandments. There are consequences when you oppress the innocent or the weak. And so we've got a problem. How can atonement be made? How can forgiveness actually happen? What's the solution? Well, part of it is hinted at in our text. And it's this idea, this biblical idea of substitution. Substitution. We understand that word, right? Substitution. Go to school and your teacher's not there and you get a substitute teacher stepping in to the place where the the other person was supposed to be. Substitution. I'm on the bench and coach looks down and says, John Davis, go in. And I get to substitute in for whoever was playing in their position, right? We understand this idea. Notice how Moses says at the end of verse 30, perhaps I can go make atonement for your sins. Perhaps I can do it. After all, Moses has stepped in for the Israelites once before already in this chapter. And it's not like any of these Israelites are in a place where they can go make atonement. 
But you see, Moses is starting to understand what we just talked about. He's starting to understand that sins against a perfectly holy, righteous, and glorious God cannot just be swept under the rug. Can't just say, God, forgive them. No atonement has to be made. For sins to be forgiven, in fact, a sacrifice must be made. A sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath. A substitute sacrifice, in fact. Because we know from Scripture, we know from places like Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, you will surely what? You will surely die. The wages of sin is death. What God owes us because we have sinned is death. The consequences of our sin, the natural and proper consequence of our sin is death. So something or someone has to die in order for sins to be forgiven. It's the way that God has set it up. It's the way that that this world works. Blood has to be shed. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 where we see this principle explicitly. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The people need an innocent substitute. Now, Moses had heard of this idea before. Do you remember before Exodus 32 here in your Old Testament? Moses has heard of this idea of a substitute sacrifice before. Specifically, he's heard the story of Abraham being called up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. God gives that extraordinarily tough word to Abraham. And Abraham, in his obedience and his faith, follows through with it to the point where God stops him last second. And then what do they see? They turn and they see a ram caught in the the brambles, the thorns. And it's a substitute sacrifice. The ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. Moses and the people of Israel also know about this firsthand because of when they came out of Egypt, the very last plague, the death of the firstborn. What did they have to do? They had to to inaugurate the Passover ritual, right? The Passover ritual means they had to slaughter an unblemished lamb and spread its blood upon their doorposts so that the angel of death coming through would pass over their house and not kill the firstborn in that house. And really, rudimentally, what you see is a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice has been made in place of that firstborn son, the lamb. His blood is what keeps the angel of death from coming into that house. And so Moses has heard of this idea before. And so Moses, astoundingly, offers up himself. He offers up himself. Look at verse 32. Moses says to God, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Perhaps God could blot me out of his book. Perhaps I could stand in as the substitute sacrifice for these Israelites. Now, this is astounding on multiple levels. Number one, the selfless love that Moses has for these disobedient, stiff-necked people. 
The, the Israelites, who have so quickly turned aside from God's commandment and God's love. And Moses came down from the mountain and saw what they were doing and was enraged and broke the, the first two tablets that God had given him of the Ten Commandments. And remember last week we saw him grind down that, that calf into powder and made the people drink it in their water. And then even had some of the Levites go through and kill some of the disobedient Israelites. Moses hates what they have done, but he offers himself up as a substitute sacrifice for them. It's an act of selfless love and concern for these Israelites. And we haven't seen anyone say anything like this in the Bible up to this point. No one's prayed like this before. And it reminds us of some things that Jesus said, referring to himself. John 10, Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's what Moses is doing here. The good shepherd. He's being a good shepherd of his people. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Specifically, this passage should remind us of Paul's words in Romans 9, verse 3. Let me read them to you. Another astounding verse in the Bible. Paul says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's talking about the Israelites there, his fellow Israelites, and the fact that they have rejected Christ. And he's burdened to the point of tears that they will not come to Jesus. And he says, I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for their sake. What he's saying is, If it were possible, I would give up my salvation so they could have theirs. If it were possible, I would be sentenced to to be separate from God for all eternity in hell. If they could be saved. Now that is astounding to me, always has been, because I don't know if I can get there in my heart, knowing what I know of hell. I don't know if I could say that I would trade places with anyone in hell. Perhaps the the closest thing we might find to something like this is is, is if our very own child walks away from God and is not saved. Would would we have that burden inside of us? I would do anything for them to be saved, give myself up for them. But it's astounding that Paul would even say it. But he's saying, I could wish. He's saying, I could wish because there's a problem with this whole idea. It's another problem with this whole idea. And the problem is Moses or Paul or anybody else... Moses is not a sufficient sacrifice. He's not sufficient. Notice how God rejects it out of hand. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. He's essentially telling Moses, no, offer rejected. You cannot do this. Moses is not a sufficient sacrifice. When you think about it, it makes sense. Number one, he's only one man. How can, how can one man substitute himself for hundreds of thousands of Israelites? Perhaps, perhaps Moses could substitute himself for one other Israelite, a one-for-one sacrifice, but he's only one man. But on top of that, there's another problem. He's a sinful man. Moses has his own sins to deal with. He can't substitute himself. He's not an innocent substitute. He's not an innocent substitute. He has his own sins to pay for. Psalm 49, verse 7, lays this out to us explicitly. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No man can do this. You can't, as much as you might want to, you can't 
give yourself spiritually for the forgiveness of someone else. And so yet again, we are left with the question, what is the solution? How does this happen? How can we actually get forgiveness and atonement? Well, I want to get to that answer by way of another little detail in this, in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. And it comes in verses 32 and 33, where Moses said, If not, if you can't forgive them, blot me out of your book that you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What is this book? What is God's book that Moses talks about and that God even references? Well, the book is the book of life. The book of life. And we know this from other places in Scripture. All throughout the Bible, we see references to this book of life. And the book of life is God's record of everyone who has eternal life. That's what the book of life is. It's God's record of everyone who has eternal life. For example, you'll see this at the very end of your Bibles in Revelation 20, verse 15, where it says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's hell. If your name is not written in the book of life, you don't get into heaven. Or Revelation 21, 27, talking about the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, the new dwelling place of God and his people. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so when you come to faith in Christ, and when you repent of your sins, and when you're baptized into his death, your name is written in that book of life. Is there a literal book, or is this symbolic and figurative? We don't really know, but ultimately does not matter. When you come to Christ, and you are saved, when you're born again, that's when your name is recorded down in God's record, God's book, of those who have eternal life. The moment you're born again, the moment your sins are washed away, the moment you are reconciled to God, that's when your name is written in God's book, the book of life. But hold on a minute. We still haven't answered this question, how did God forgive my sins? How is my name just put into that book of life? How am I made right with God when my sin separates me from God? Well, we've been hinting at it all around this morning. Jesus made atonement for us on the cross. Jesus Christ made atonement for us on the cross. He was the only one who could do it. When Jesus was on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve. He took the full force of God's wrath against sin so that anyone who would come to God through faith in Christ could have his death applied to their account. So, God does not sweep sin under the rug. He does not sweep any sin under the rug. Every sin will be punished one way or the other. Every sin in history will be punished, whether it's through Christ on the cross or through that person who never came to Christ suffering God's wrath for all eternity for their own sins. But there is a way you don't have to suffer for your sins. There is a way that Christ can suffer for them for you. He suffered on the cross for the sins of the whole world, and that death and that suffering can be applied to your account if you come to him in faith. If you come to him and repent of your sins, and if you are baptized into his name, you do not have to suffer for your own sins. You can be forgiven. 
and forgiven in such a way that God remains just. He remains good in everyone's eyes because he did not sweep it under the rug. He punished it in the sins or in, in, the, in the life and in the suffering and in the death of an innocent substitute, his own son, Jesus. Jesus is a sinless, innocent substitute. And so Moses here once again points us to Jesus. He points us to Jesus all the way back in Exodus 32. In the the beauty of God's wisdom and his perfect providence and plan, he was working out a picture of Christ all the way back thousands of years before, all the way back to Exodus in the very beginning, pointing people to what would eventually be his son's death on the cross. Moses points us to Christ first in the way that we see him mediating between the people and God. We've seen that in recent weeks here in our study of Exodus 32. We see Christ in Moses in the way that Moses offers up himself as a substitute sacrifice of atonement. But most importantly, we see Christ in this passage in the way that God rejects Moses' offer. God says no to Moses' offer because Moses can't do it. And it points forward to the one who eventually could. The Old Testament is full of characters who foreshadow Jesus Christ. Full of them. As you read through your Old Testament, this is one of the the main benefits of reading the Old Testament is you see the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ over and over and over again in different characters in different situations. Tons of Old Testament characters point to Jesus. Noah, Abraham, Job, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Josiah, Daniel, and we could go on and on. But every time we see their insufficiency, every time we meet a character that points forward to Jesus, we see that they can't do what needs to be done. God's people were always looking for someone else. They were always looking for the one, for the Messiah. The one who would finally do what all the others could not. Because the Old Testament is all of it pointing forward to Jesus by showing us that no one else can do what needs to be done. No matter how righteous they are, no matter how favored by God they were, no matter how powerful or wise they were, none of them could do what only Jesus could do to be the perfect, innocent, sinless, substitute sacrifice. And so we see in this passage that we cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot work off our sins by doing lots of good works. We cannot punish ourselves enough. And as much as we might want to, we cannot even make atonement for the sins of anyone else. The only way atonement can be made is by a sinless, innocent, substitute sacrifice. One who has the capacity to suffer for the sins of the entire world. I leave you with God's words from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, which says, God made him to be sin. God made him who knew no sin, rather. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right now, we're going to take some time to pray about what we have just heard. And during this time, 
We ask that each and every one of you go to God and in, in no uncertain terms, do business with the Lord. Reckon with God. Respond to what God has laid upon your heart through the word by his Holy Spirit. And as that will probably look different for every single one of us, we offer this time for all of us to do it individually. And so we encourage you and challenge you to pray during this time and to speak to the Lord. After we have time of individual prayer, we'll come back and we'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. Right now, let's pray.